Hey, I'm Kim Forrester and welcome to Eudaimonia, the podcast that is all about flourishing. More than just the mundane or pleasure and pain, Eudaimonia calls for us to create a good life. It's about fulfillment, inspiration, joy. So plug in, relax and get ready for the goodness as we explore the characteristics and daily practices that can help you, your loved ones and your community flourish. Most of us understand the healing power of compassion, and society applauds those who comfort and care for others in their time of suffering. But how many of us turn that nurturing energy inward, into our own aching hearts, when we need it most? Dr. Kristen Neff is an author, researcher, and pioneer in the field of self-compassion, She's an associate professor in human development and culture at the University of Texas in Austin, the author of Self-Compassion, The Proven Power of Being Kind to Yourself, and co-author of The Mindful Self-Compassion Workbook. It's my absolute pleasure to be chatting with Kristen today to talk about the importance of self-compassion and to learn how we can turn our inner dialogue away from harsh criticism and towards support, understanding and self-care. Kristen, thank you so much for choosing to be a part of the Eudaimonia podcast. It's an absolute delight to have you here with me today. Oh, thank you for having me. Now, you are regarded as one of the pioneers in self-compassion. Why did you decide to explore this topic in particular? Well, for me, it really started as personal practice. Um, I had learned about self-compassion when I started meditating and I saw the immediate difference it made in my personal life. Um, and I had also done some research on self-esteem and was familiar with all the problems psychologists were finding with self-esteem. And I thought this is a really great alternative because it's a healthier way of relating to yourself. So I just kind of started research on it and uh, it's exploding now. It's really quite remarkable. So you mentioned that it's actually changed your life, this exploration of self-compassion. You were obviously taking steps through meditation and other practices, I assume, to to increase your well-being. But how has self-compassion in particular um, enhanced your life? Well, I mean, it's really transformative pretty much for anyone who practices it. I I wasn't even a particularly harsh self-critic but I was going through a really stressful time when I learned self-compassion. I'd actually just gotten out of a divorce. And then other times in my life, for instance, my my son was diagnosed with autism. And um, being able to have this resource of being a good, kind, encouraging, supportive friend to yourself when times are difficult um, just made all the difference in the world in my ability to cope with challenge. So, um, you know, it, it's really that. It's, it's having that voice inside of your head that's warm, caring, and supportive. I mean, of course it's going to help. <laughs> you actually share a story on your website about um, a moment with your son. You're traveling on a plane, and he yes. all of a sudden becomes very irritable and upset. And um, in that moment, you turned to self-compassion. Can you share that story with my listeners, perhaps, um, as an example of how self-compassion can work? Yeah, and and, I'll, and it, it's useful for two ways, not only in terms of helping me cope, but in helping my son cope. 
you know, a lot of people are, are under the false impression that self-compassion is somehow selfish, that we should be focusing on other people, not ourselves. But that's not the way the human brain works. We have these things called mirror neurons where we're constantly feeling the emotions of others and they're feeling our emotions, right? So mm. there's always back and forth interaction. So when you're around, whether you're caring for your elderly parents or your professional caregiver or you've got a situation like a child with autism or some other difficulty, every time you're in the presence of someone else's distress, you feel that distress inside your own brain, you know, through your mirror neurons. <clears throat> but, it, but it goes both ways, right? It goes both ways in that the person you're with, that you're caring for, every single person you're coming into contact with either picks up on your internal mind state, which may be self-critical, full of shame and frustrated, or compassionate, kind, <laughs> loving, right? And so really the two are intertwined. So in, in this particular case, um, you know, it's a throne on the plane. His parents, his grandparents actually live in England. And it was just that moment when they when they turned the lights down on, on the plane in a transatlantic flight. Everyone's hoping to get some sleep. <laughs> and for some reason, that light change triggered him. I have no idea why. And he went into a full-on, you know, screaming, flailing tantrum. And so I, you know, I had no idea what to do. I felt completely overwhelmed in that moment. And the one thought that came to me, you know, it was, it was not a good plan, but it was the only one I had was to take him into the toilet and have him cry in there. And somehow maybe it might muffle his screams, right? So I go to the toilet and I'm, you know, ready to try to uh, escape the situation. But of course I couldn't because the toilet was occupied. Obviously life in that moment did not have... <laughs> His plan was not to allow me to cleverly escape the situation. It wanted me to do something else. So, you know, I, I was really kind of hopeless at that point, except that I did have my self-compassion practice. So, I mean, normally when I when I practice self-compassion in public, I do it very, I don't like, I don't do anything really obvious. I just kind of do it internally in my head. But that I, things were so bad. I was like putting my hands on my heart. I was rocking. I was like just really trying to soothe and comfort myself. I was you know, validating how hard it was for me and that I just reminded myself that I was there, that I would support myself and that it was going to be okay. And then when I did this, uh, he calmed down, Rowan calmed down. You know, over and over again, I saw when I got frustrated and ramped up, mad at myself or, or him, he would get more irritated through his mirror neurons. But the more I can soothe and comfort myself, not only did it give me the resources to be there for Rowan in terms of, you know, my attention, but he actually fed off my, my calmer, more compassionate mind state. So self-compassion is good for ourselves and others. It's not one, you know, we, we can't really separate us and our others. In so many levels, Kristen, in so many facets <laughs> of our lives. But what you described there, that that comforting and soothing of self, I actually think that would feel really awkward and foreign to most people. Why do you think we resist this concept of self-compassion? Yeah, it does feel awkward and foreign to most people. Um, well, first of all, we aren't we aren't taught that it's a good s skill. People have um, really uh, a lot of misconceptions about self compassion. First of all, they confuse it with self pity. It's very different than self pity. Um, self pity is self focused. Poor me. Compassion, by definition, is is uh, brings others into the equation. Actually, the word Latin compassion to suffer with. So self-compassion, we remember that, you know, all people suffer. It's not just me. This is just part of the human condition. Nothing's wrong because I'm having a hard time or I made a mistake. In fact, this is what being human is about. 
So with that more connected relation to our own difficulty, um, we actually feel less separate from others. And But people don't realize that. They think it's self-pity. They think it's selfish. Again, they don't really realize how self-compassion actually allows you to give more than others. Um, there's, there's other mi um, misconceptions, like people think, will undermine your motivation, make you complacent. Um, research shows it's the exact opposite. You know, mm. we know that encouraging, kind, supportive motivation is actually a lot more effective than shame and blame. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> if someone tells you, you're a loser, you'll never amount to anything, you know, it's not exactly the best motivational mindset. Whereas if people use constructive criticism, oh, here's, here's where you can improve, you know, I really believe in you, here's what you can do, I'll help you, I'll support you, that's gonna be more effective. But um, so I think a lot of the reason we don't do it is because our culture doesn't teach us and we, we have these fears about it. Um, so it, it, it also, another thing is um, when we feel threatened, we go into fight, flight, or freeze response. And so we turn that fight or flight or freeze inward. We either ruminate, we get stuck, or we beat ourselves up thinking somehow it's going to um, you know, improve the situation, or we kind of hide ourselves in shame. Uh, whereas with other people, we can be compassionate to others because, you know, their, their problems don't threaten us as directly, whereas ours do. And so one of the useful things about self-compassion, and it does feel awkward, but in a way that's useful, because what happens is instead of being lost in our problems, like running away with the storyline, oh my God, the world's going to end, you know, this is forever, I'm terrible. By stepping outside of ourselves and treating ourselves in a way that's not so normal, you know, like we would treat a good friend, it actually gives us some perspective on our situation. So we're less likely to run away with the situation, we're less likely to ruminate, we're more likely to see clearly, and it gives us a little bit of space between us and our difficulty, which, which allows for more skillful action. So it, it does feel weird, but it, it, believe it or not, it can be trained and over time it becomes much more normal feeling. You're very quick there to distance self-compassion from self-pity. And I know that you also teach that it is definitely not self-indulgence. But how can we tell if we're falling into one of those unhelpful mindsets? How can we tell that we're stepped out right. of self-compassion and into self-indulgence? Yes. So self-indulgence, so indulgence, the definition of it is short-term pleasure at the expense of long-term harm, mm. right? So yeah, the occasional bowl of ice cream or, so, or some, some other thing, you know, the occasional, I don't know, whatever it is, pleasure is actually good for you. But when it's self-indulgent means that you're actually um, causing yourself harm in the long run, like you're drinking every night or eating a ton of sugary foods, right? It's going to actually harm you in the long run. And so self-compassion, compassion is concerned with the alleviation of suffering. That's kind of another definition of compassion. So if you just ask yourself, is this helping me or harming me in the long run? Mm. And if it's harming you in the long run and just feels good now, it's actually not, it's not good for you, which means it's not self-compassion. Okay. You know, the same thing with a kid, a parent and a kid. We know with parents and their children, we know the difference between an indulgent parent or a compassionate parent. A compassionate parent doesn't say, oh, yeah, sure, skip school, eat all the ice cream mm. you want. <laughs> you know, the, the, a good parent does what's good for their child. So the same with us. So self-compassion is not the open invitation to actually justify unhealthy behavior in yourself. No, no, quite the opposite. Again, because um, if, you were, if you were just to justify it and not see clearly the harm that was being caused, well, then you wouldn't be a good friend to yourself. You wouldn't be helping yourself, mm -hmm. right? Compassion, again, is all about reducing or alleviating our own suffering. 
On the other hand, it does understand that perfection is not possible, that we learn through our mistakes, you know, that try as we may, we're, we're still going to fall down. But what, what that means is what kind of the bottom line of self-acceptance, we can, we can try and fail, try and fail, that it actually becomes safe to try after failure as opposed to giving up. So it really um, keeps us trying to do our best because we care, not because we aren't good enough as we are. Now, in your work, you also share this incredible entwined relationship between self-esteem and self-compassion. Can you explain that to my listeners? Yeah. So um, it's not that they're so entwined. They just, they're kind of, people get confused because they're Mm. both kind of positive emotions toward the self. But self-esteem is um, a judgment or an evaluation. You know, I'm a good person. I'm a bad person. I'm Mm. worthy. I'm unworthy. Right. And so it's a judgment. And and for most people, it's based on three things, which is um, how popular I am, you know, and then by the way, it's not how popular you are, how how much your mother likes you or how much your best friend likes you. (laughs) It's like other people at work, other people in general, you know, we don't really know them and they don't really know us. So that's kind of a source of it. Or perceived appearance is also very important or or success, you know, whatever you care about, job or, or athletics. Um, and the problem with that is that it's very contingent, right? So we feel good about ourselves when we succeed, but just when we really need to feel good about ourselves, which is when we fail, mm, <laughs> our yeah. self-esteem deserts us. It's kind of a fair-weather friend. Um, so self-compassion is not about judging ourselves positively. It's just about treating ourselves kindly, you know, especially when we fail or are feeling bad about ourselves. So the sense of self-worth doesn't come from a judgment or evaluation. It comes simply from the fact that we're a human being worthy of kindness like all human beings are. And so it's much more, the sense of self-worth linked to self-compassion is much more stable over time. Um, and there's lots of research showing it's actually much healthier. You know, for instance, you don't have to feel special and above average to have high <laughs> self-compassion, yeah. Yeah. which you do with high self-esteem. And that's a problem because by definition, we can't all be above average. No. So, you know, you don't have to compare yourself to others. You don't have to be better than others. And so, like, for instance, self-esteem is linked to bullying. Why do little kids bully? Why do early adolescents bully? Because they want to feel like the cool Good kid. Yeah. Picks on yeah. that. Yeah. Whereas self-compassion, you don't have to be better than others to have compassion. You just have to be, a you know, a flawed human being like everyone else. And that actually is an achievable goal. <laughs> so. You actually say there are three elements to self-compassion. Perhaps you can talk them through with me briefly. So first of all is self-kindness, which kind of seems rather obvious. Right, yeah. So that's kind of more the the kind of easy way to think about self-compassion is being a good friend to yourself. Um, The other two elements are are equally important, but they're a little less obvious. Uh, The first actually is mindfulness. I mean, Mm. we hear a lot about mindfulness these days, but mindfulness is core to self-compassion. Um, in other words, you have to be willing to notice pain. Not only, not only you have to notice it, you have to like be willing to turn toward it because usually we don't like to see pain. Like we don't like to see the homeless person on the street, or we're so lost in our our struggle that we we can't see it, or else we shove it down because we don't want to see it. So the first step is just acknowledging, "Wow, I'm really having a hard time." Mm. So that's kind of you can't even give yourself compassion. If you don't acknowledge that you're you're having a hard time and you need kindness, so that's the first step. Um, and then uh, then of course a kind rather than judgmental response. But really important is uh, the third element is common humanity. 
And this is what I was talking about that, that differentiate self-compassion from self-pity, right? So self-pity is for me with, with self-compassion because of this framing in the sense of the larger humanity. It's, well, this is the way life is. Um, and this is really important because even though we know logically that everyone's perfect and logically we know everyone struggles, emotionally we forget it. So in the moment when we make a mistake, we say that comment or you know, we get that call from the doctor, in the moment we feel like some, something has gone wrong. You know, things, things yeah. aren't supposed to be this way. As if what's supposed to be happening is everything's perfect. And that in that moment, everyone else in the world is leading a normal, perfect life. Yeah. And it's just <laughs> me who's messed up. And, and that really adds insult to injury because not only are we struggling, we feel all alone in our struggle. And for human beings, feeling isolated and cut off is really psychologically damaging. So with self-compassion, we just remember, oh, wait, this is normal. This is part of life. You know, it's, it's not the end of the world. It's not just me. And that really helps. Well, that's really interesting because in that common humanity, first of all, we've taken the time and the courage to accept that we're going through a hard time and that it's probably mm -hmm. affecting the way that we're behaving and acting in the world. When we're in that space and then we are aware of our common humanity, do you think that self-compassion can allow us to be more compassionate and tolerant and understanding towards others? Yeah, it can. So so it's, it's a little complicated. The research definitely shows that people who are more self-compassionate, you know, they can do more perspective taking because that, really that's inherent to self-compassion. They're more forgiving than others. They are also more compassionate to others, but the, the relationship isn't as strong as you think. And that is only because there are many people who are very compassionate to others and who aren't compassionate to themselves. Mm. So in other words, you know, whenever there's a difference, it's always the case that people are more compassionate to others than to themselves. So, and, and in fact, some people are almost at ceiling, like they, they, you know, on a scale of one to five, they might be like a 4.5. Yes, I'm so compassionate to others. Now, of course, that may not be totally true, <laughs> but they feel like they're always giving, they're always being compassionate. At the same time, I mean, you probably know many people like this. You can, you can have incredibly caring, kind, sweet people who just beat themselves to shreds. So the two don't necessarily go hand in hand. Yet we do know um, for all people that when you teach them to be more self-compassionate, um, they do become more compassionate to others. But the real important thing is they can sustain it. They don't necessarily burn out. Because if you give and you give and you give and you beat yourself up, you aren't going to be able to maintain the giving. So self-compassion, when you kind of even the playing field, so you give to both yourself and others, it actually allows you to sustain compassion over time. So while we're talking about other people and common humanity, are there ways that we as parents, spouses, friends, work colleagues can enable others to be more self-compassionate or is it none of our business how others treat themselves? <laughs> well, I mean, so first, if it's your um, partner, for instance, it may be your business if, it, if, if their self-criticism is um, rebounding on you. Remember that if someone's really like negative and upset and frustrated, you're feeling that with your, your neurons. So you may, it may be something uh, that you want to yeah. work on in, in therapy. I mean, I think coworkers is perhaps none of our business. Um, children, of course, it is our business because we want our kids to be as healthy as possible. So I, I do think it's something to maybe discuss, but I also know that you can't like shove it down people's throats. 
they have to want to be kinder to themselves and see its benefits. So I always recommend that people just model self-compassion. Like for kids, just, you know, if you drop the glass, take that as an opportunity to say, ah, you know, well, it's only human. People make mistakes. And, you know, if you, you take the wrong turn on the freeway, well, okay, how do I learn from this and do better next time? But if you beat yourself up in front of your kids, if you model like, oh, I'm such a stupid, uh, mm. you're going gonna to model that for your kids. But if you model compassionate, kind, understanding language towards yourself, that's also going to be something your, your kids pick up. Um, and then, of course, if they want to talk to you about it, uh, that's wonderful. And for instance, a lot of parents, when they teach their kids about friendship and what it means to be a good friend, they take that opportunity to also say, and of course, that includes yourself, you know, what, what does it mean to be a good friend to yourself? What do you think that would look like, you know? And, and uh, friendship is, is really, the I find, the best way to teach little kids about self-compassion. So let's turn that on its head. What if we have got someone close to us, someone we love, who keeps falling into self-pity? Is there a way that we can nudge them out of self-pity towards self-compassion? <laughs> right. I mean, so you, you have to be a little careful because, of course, people may take your nudging as a, a lack of acceptance or judgment, mm. right? So I think um, if you were to talk to someone and, and, and maybe introduce the idea, well, have you ever thought that maybe you can, you know, just re remember that um, everyone struggles, you know, maybe you don't have to feel so alone in your struggle as opposed to saying, you know, this, there'd be a way to frame it so it doesn't sound like, you know, <laughs> stop, stop being a crybaby, right? Uh, but sometimes, you know, we, we don't have control over other people's reactions. And sometimes the best thing to do is just to give yourself compassion for the fact that uh, it's difficult to be around people who are really lost in self-pity or self-criticism. Um, you know, and you, you do what you can. But, you know, I, I do think we, we don't want to have self-compassion be the next self-improvement thing. Like, you know, got to exercise more, got to eat more, got to have more self-compassion. It needs to come kind of more from an, a holistic place of wanting to be healthier from the inside as opposed to someone forcing it on us, I think. Sure. Now, because self-compassion, I think, is awkward and foreign for so many people, I'm not sure that I even know what that looks like in a moment. When I'm having a, a stressful moment or a dark moment, what is it that I say to myself, Kristen? What is it that I do for myself in that moment that can help me be more nurturing, compassionate and comforting towards myself? Well, you could, an easy thing is just to think if you had a close friend who was going through the exact same situation you were going through, you know, what would you say to them? How would, what, what type of language would you use? What would your tone of voice be? You know, what would your body posture be? So uh, most people, they kind of are quite naturally kind to their friends who are mm. struggling. So that's one source. Um, another very easy way, actually, to be there for yourself is through physical touch. Um, and I know it seems awkward, it seems touchy-feely, but there's a reason it's touchy-feely because it's really based in, in physiology. Um, touch for human beings is one of the most important signals of care. And it makes sense, of course, because when a baby is born, they don't have any language. So all the caring, the fact that they're cared for and, and the attachment bond between parents and the child is, is primarily communicated through touch. Also, some sounds like the gentle sounds, oh, the those cooing noises, mm -hmm. you know, tone of voice, a gentle tone of voice, actually, again, communicates to infants um, care. 
So you can actually do a lot for yourself by using some sort of touch that feels supportive. Some people like to put their hands on their hearts or maybe, you know, on their on their center, you know, kind of their, above their belly or hold their own hand or touch their face. But again, some, you know, if the mind can't go there because it's too full of the story line of, you know, what's wrong or how I'm wrong, touch can actually cut through that. And it actually activates the parasympathetic nervous system, which is like the tendon befriend response, reduces cortisol, it increases heart rate variability, which allows us to more flexibly respond. So you can do an awful lot through touch. It also grounds yourself and you touch yourself as if someone else was touching you. You kind of you kind of feel it. It's not normal. So you think, oh, I feel supported yeah. by myself. And then so if you start with touch and then add in the language and think about tone of voice, all those three together can be really quite potent. So what about external factors? Are there ways that we can draw from our environment when we are trying to be more self-compassionate? You know, things like a bubble bath or some soothing music. Is that something that you normally integrate into self-compassionate practices? Yeah, so, um, so that's kind of all falls under self-care. And self-care, um, you might think of it, it kind of depends on its intention. So if you if you take a bath or you put on music because as an intentional response to the fact that you're feeling bad, mm-hmm. it actually is a type of self-compassion. You're meeting your own needs in that moment. You know, sometimes it, it could fall into self-indulgence just depending on the circumstances in a way only you know. Um, but self, self-care is great. The, the only problem with self-care is it, it often happens kind of not when the immediate stressor is there. Like they, they say to parents, you know, practice self-care. And that's great. But what you really need to do what you, when you really need um, self-compassion is like at the moment when your toddler is having the meltdown. Yeah. So that's where self-compassion comes in. In the moment, you can validate this is really hard for me. You know, this is so difficult, but, you know, this is something parents go through. This is normal. Um, you know, I'm going to be kind to myself. I'm going to try to be supportive and understanding, caring um, to help get me through this moment. You know, and then when you go home, you can have a bubble bath if you, if you have time because <laughs> you're changing the diapers. But um, so self-care is a, is a part of self-compassion, but it is limited by the fact that you have to have the time and the resources to do it. And it's usually kind of off the job, not on the job. So. Sure. So according to the research that you've done, Kristen, is there any real benefit to practicing self-compassion other than feeling a bit better about ourselves? Well, I mean, the, the research literature is huge. There are almost 2,000 studies now. So, I mean, for instance, um, very strong links to well-being, less depression, less anxiety, um, fewer eating disorders, better body image, less maladaptive perfectionism, um, better coping with stress, less stress, and more positive outcomes like happiness, well-being. Um, seems to be linked to physical health, like better immune function. It helps you cope with pain. It's better for romantic relationships, for instance. And people are make better relationship partners when they're self-compassionate. Uh, it's good for aging. It's good for things like um, taking care of yourself, going to the doctor, exercising. So, so really, I think what we're finding is self-compassion is really helpful in almost any 
sphere of life you apply it to. And, and again, if you think about it, it just makes sense. What's really surprising is that people don't do it more often because whatever your circumstance is, if you're a good friend to yourself as opposed to an enemy cutting yourself down, you're going to be better at whatever you're doing. You're going to be, you know, having a helpful as opposed to a harmful attitude to yourself is just going to make it, you're going to make yourself more successful um, in, in addition to helping your well-being. It makes sense in, in the way that you would guide a good friend through life in the best way possible. You end up guiding yourself through life in the best way possible. Exactly. And it's also useful, you know, in, in another way of thinking about it is kind of reparenting yourselves, ourselves. I mean, you know, some people were fortunate to have great parents who were always there for them when they needed them. But most of us, you know, had more human parents <laughs> who sometimes weren't there or, you know, were critical or, or whatever couldn't be there for us for a variety of reasons and so with self-compassion you're there for yourself you're meeting your own needs you know you're really asking yourself what do I need and then you're taking action to give it to yourself um, including sometimes what you need is to protect yourself to say no to draw boundaries so um, you know which is also part of being a parent protecting your child yeah so that this internal really like kind of having that good secure relationship with yourself can actually even help repair some of the wounds of the past if you didn't have such great parenting. Um, and it's just a, a really a powerful resource, again, for well-being. Now, my final question is one that I ask every guest on the Eudaimonia podcast. I'm wondering if you can recommend a morning reminder. So this might be a daily ritual, a practice, an affirmation that can help my listeners develop self-compassion in their daily lives. So there's a, a practice we have. Uh, I have it on my website, actually. If you just Google self-compassion, you'll find me. I'm um, called the self-compassion break. And it, it's probably one of the most portable practices to use. Um, and I wouldn't say necessary. You, you could do it first thing in the morning, but it's, it's really only relevant when you're struggling in some way. So mm -hmm. if you wake up and you're feeling great, probably do some other practice. <laughs> but if sometime during the day you're feeling stressed or anxious or, you know, sad or overwhelmed, it's a really useful practice. And it basically entails um, reminding yourself of the three components of self-compassion. So, you know, that, that first of all, reminding yourself that you're struggling, that's the mindfulness, you know, this is really, I'm having a really hard time. Just mm. that in and of itself, recognizing it as opposed to being lost in it is very helpful. And then reminding yourself that, you know, this is part of life. This is what happens. It's not just me. You know, it's not like everyone else is having a perfect time. This is normal. I'm not alone in this. So that's the common humanity. And then really just taking a few moments, even if it's, you know, just 30 seconds, to be kind to yourself. Maybe put your hand on your face or your arm and just say, you know, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm here, you know, here for you. You, could, you can talk to yourself in the third person. You can call yourself by your name. You can call yourself sweetheart if that feels comfortable <laughs> or whatever. Or it may, it may not, but, you know, just remind yourself, I'm, I'm here for myself. Um, I care. You know, I want to be well and happy. I'm going to do what I can to help in this moment. Uh, and, and so just bringing in the three components of self-compassion combined with some sort of physical in activating your your care system physiologically um, can be really powerful it sounds really truly beautiful and a little bit awkward so i would encourage all my listeners to yes. try this and allow yourself to feel a little bit awkward and uncomfortable in the beginning because the benefits are obviously out of this world you can also do it in private too you don't have to do it in public <laughs> <laughs> or or in the middle of a packed plane on over the Atlantic. Yes. <laughs> 
<laughs> Kristen, how can people find more about you? There, You actually have a website, selfcompassion.com, is that correct? Dot org, but you, you'll find, if you just Google self-compassion, you'll find me. And, and so I've got videos. You can actually take your own, uh, you can test your own self-compassion level. Um, I've got exercises, guided meditations. That's probably um, the best place to start. And, and if you're a science nerd, I have hundreds and hundreds of the original PDF uh, science, scientific articles, research articles on there as well. I want to thank you very, very much for all your work that you have done for the research, for undertaking this incredibly important uh, program and process and investigation into a, um, a phenomenal practice that we really don't know enough about. So thank you very much for all that you've done in that space, Kristen. Welcome. Thanks so much for having me on your show. <laughs> Thanks so much for being here. Take good care. As the author Jack Cronfield once said, if your compassion does not include yourself, it is incomplete. You've been listening to the Eudaimonia podcast. If you'd like to learn more about how to live a truly flourishing life, please subscribe and check out eudaimoniapod.com for more inspiring episodes. I'm Kim Forrester. Until next time, be well, be kind to yourself, and remember, turn that compassion inward. The 2019 Wellness Summit is almost here. I love being at these events. They're always such a great, positive environment. And it's been really great to um, listen to like-minded people and to um, meet a few people, actually. I've been to every summit and I've been to every one and I'll always keep coming. It's always inspiring. It's been a real eye-opener. We're actually signed up to go to the breakthrough now. It's very motivating. I think it's great to listen to people who are inspired. And there's always something to learn and something to take away. I think uh, for myself and giving myself that um, opportunity to, to learn. There's so much going on in life and everything that you can get distracted and forget the things that you should be doing. And this always reminds you to get back on track and, and um, to focus on the things that are important and holistic help. Just do it, yeah. Just yeah, suck it up and do it. It's, uh, it could be life-changing, yeah. I would say it's awesome and it's the start of changing your life. Come along, see what it's about, and enjoy it. It's an amazing event with like-minded, positive people, and you can't help but um, walk away feeling great. Positive Mentor presents the 2019 Wellness Summit, August 17 and 18 in Melbourne. Can you afford to miss out? Tickets at thewellnesssummit.com. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst The Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of The Wellness Couch podcasts.